Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and a very, very warm welcome to Borough Talks. I'm Angela and I am your host and I'm here today in the studio with three guests. Um, I shall explain why these three in a little bit but let's uh, let's first do some introductions kicking off with a gentleman who has been on the podcast before. Um, Mark Ridway, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you too, yes. Um, Mark, there are often many reasons why you're involved in various things at uh, Borough Market but let's let's explore why you're here today for this. Um, so so as you know I've, I've over the years uh, written quite a lot of um, history relating to the market and the food in the market, um, and so so for this, um, I, I was looking into the history of the of yeah. the frost fairs. The frost fairs, because yeah. that is why we're here. We're here to talk about Better Bankside and the frost fair um, excitements kind of happening all the way through December and January. So, Mark, you're very much here with your edible historious hat. That's right. Yes. Hat on. Um, joined by Andy Geddes from the Cinnamon Tree Bakery. Nice hey. to see you, Andy. How's it going? Really, really good. Thank you. Great. Um, Tell us just a little bit about what you guys do. We'll get more into it, but quick burst. Okay, we're long, long-standing traders at Borough. I think we've been around since 2008. Sweet bakery, gingerbread is a speciality for us, so I guess that's that's really like our focus on relating to the history of the Frost Fair. Is uh, gingerbread has been a around for a few hundred years in different forms. How long have you been at the market, Andy? We've been around since 2008. 2008. Yeah. Is that small fry compared to Tim Wilson of the Ginger Pig? It will be, yeah. <laughs> it certainly I will be. I don't know when we started. I know no we were very, We were the very first weekend. It was a bank holiday weekend in August and Henrietta Green had a food lovers fair. That was yeah. 1998. You see, that's the good thing about having historian here. Yeah, it is. I always say it's about 10 years ago. I've said that for the last 10 years yeah. anyway. That's about yeah, 10 yeah, years yeah, ago, yeah. but 1998, bloody hell, it's a long time, isn't it? Yeah. No, there you go, you've got 10 years on, on us. 25 years. I was young when I started there. 25 years, yeah, you should have some kind of big 25-year thing, shouldn't you? I should get a, I should get a, a pocket watch from the, uh, yeah. the trustees. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll feed that back. We'll, yeah, uh, thank you. We'll let them know. Uh, Tim Wilson, Ginger Pig, lovely to see you and have you here. So, yes, we are here for all things Frost Fairs. Anyone who is uh, getting down to Bankside over the course of December, January, this podcast is going out in January. We're actually sitting talking in the middle of December. Um, it's hard not to kind of you know, be inundated really by the Frost Fair fun that's happening. There's lots of art installations and films and murals and lots of things kind of uh, commemorating the history of this particular area of London, which we're all very connected to in different ways. Um, but I. Uh, have to say that Frost Fair was a bit of a newie for me. It wasn't something which I'd encountered what it was until discovering what it was uh, for Bankside and Borough Market. So, Mark, I feel you are the man to set us all at peace about what was Frost Fair. Right, so I guess the place to start is with um, a, 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 a climatic phenomenon that occurred um, for, for a period of, of several hundred years, starting in the 16th century and... and and uh, and continuing up until uh, the, the the middle of the nineteenth century, which has become known um, as as the Little Ice Age, um, and it was a it was a period where uh, in the whole kind of North Atlantic region of the world, 
um, for, for for reasons that are still much debated, um, the, uh, the 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 temperature um, of that region, the average temperature dropped, um, and, uh, and 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 Britain, along with a lot of other uh, countries in, in in northern Europe and, and North America, um, experienced this um, long sustained cold period. Uh, where where temperatures in the winter were were several degrees lower than than we'd be used to now. Like today is a cold day uh, in the middle of in the middle of winter, but it's nothing compared to uh, to, cold, to some of the winters. How cold are we talking today? So 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 like one one of the one of the one of the years we're going to talk about was 1684, um, which is the the coldest winter on record in in England. We've got records going back to the 16th century consistently of uh, of kind of monthly temperature recordings. And uh, in that winter, the average temperature over the course of three months. So this is the average, not the not the minimum, but the average was was less than uh, minus one degree. So so if you can imagine like and that's that's from from December to the end of February. So so uh, incredibly cold, incredibly cold. And as a result of this, um, on on occasions, not frequently, but but every every kind of decade or two, uh, it would it would be so cold for for a consistently long period that that the Thames, in its widest, um, slowest moving parts, would actually freeze over, completely freeze over, and it just so happens that that the, the widest, slowest moving part of the Thames is is the uh, was the part um, uh, where on, on Bankside where Borough Market is now mm-hmm. um, so from from London Bridge sort of down down to to kind of Blackfriars and beyond um, so so on occasion from the middle of the 16th century onwards the river would freeze and it would freeze so solidly that um, that these kind of spontaneous explosions of, um, of, of of fun would break out on the river and people would pile down from the city um, to, 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 to mess about on the ice, to play sports, to, um, to dance, to ice skate, to, to, to bear bait and bull bait and all the other things that passed for entertainment um, uh, a few hundred years ago. How and many times did it happen, do we know? I, so so I think if you look at sort of the, the kind of, there the, the were kind of occasional days when it was possible, but, but the kind of sustained uh, periods, there were like seven or eight starting in the middle of the 16th century and then the last one was in 1814. So, so not, you know, it, 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 it was very unpredictable. You never knew when one was yeah. going to happen and, yeah, and there yeah. could be 20 years without this happening. Yes, yeah, so, yes, that's a good point because there was, obviously wasn't weather forecasting in the way that Not in the way that we have yeah, now. Obviously no. about it now. So do we know people did have advance warning of it coming? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Um, I, I, and, and I guess the... the, um, the the, the, there's a fine line between a river being partially frozen and mm. the river being sufficiently frozen for people to go out on, and dance and, and race horses and fox hunt and all the other mad things they did yeah. out there. And, and you don't want to get the wrong side of that line, do you? Because no. I, I think, I think um, falling into a partially frozen River Thames is, is probably not, yeah. Yeah. not that fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the last one... Of this happening was when? Say that again. It was eighteen fourteen. Eighteen fourteen, yeah, and that February was eighteen fourteen. Oh, and do we know why it stopped? It, is it sort like a, a climate thing? So it's a combination of climate and topography, I suppose. So okay. so so two things happen. One is one is that that Britain and and uh, started warming up again. Uh, the Little Ice Age ended, uh, and the other is that the um, like w- w- where we see the Thames now. With with those big solid embankments and and all of the multiple bridges that 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 um, 
that uh, run down that stretch of the Thames, the water is a lot more... F- the, the river is a lot uh, narrower now, a lot deeper and a lot faster moving hmm. um, as a result of, of, of that kind of engineering work that happened. So, so um, yeah, it's a combination of, like, rising temperatures and, and, and a sped-up river. Didn't they change London Bridge about that time as well? They, they did, they, and, they, and actually, they... actually one of the reasons was the damage from the um, from the last frost fair, the ice, the ice, expanding ice actually uh, started to undermine the... That um, was the reason. So there the, were a lot more pillars across the bridge that slowed right. the flow down, which that's right. caused the problems. Yeah. And Mark, just talk to me a little bit, we sort of get into thinking about what these frost fairs were like and the kind of you know, fun and entertainment and food and drink people were having at them. Before we get to that, let's just talk about what was Borough and Bankside like at that point? What was its position within the city, its position feeding the city, those, those kind of things. Well, so, so when, when, the, when the very first frost fairs happened in the 16th century, um, I think the interesting thing about Borough is it wasn't part of London. Still, it's still, you know, Southwark was, Southwark was, a, was, a, was a separate space. London was on the north side of the river. Um, different rules applied in Southwark. Um, and uh, at that point, when, when those very first frost fairs happened, the market, uh, the market was actually out on the high street um, at the foot of London Bridge. And London Bridge at that point was the only crossing into the city. Um, so uh, it, 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 was, uh, it, it was quite a problematic position in some respects because the, um, uh, it, it did tend to kind of block traffic, which, which uh, eventually led to its uh, downfall or certainly a, a, a change. Um, but it was, it was very much a, it was a, it was a, it was a market for, for the town of Southwark. It was mm-hmm. a produce market. Um, it, there would have been bakers, there would have been fishmongers, there would have been there would have been butchers, but not but not not as we know it now. Uh, uh, Pre refrigeration, you couldn't just rock up to sell bits of animal. Um, so they, the, there were livestock available to buy, basically. Um, a lot of fruit and veg coming in from from the counties of the south. Yeah. Um, so, so that, so that's what the market would have looked like when the first frost fairs happened, yeah. and then in the in the um, in the middle of the 18th century, uh, the the um, the congestion on the road became so problematic that Parliament forced the uh, the market to close, and a, a group of local parishioners um, who were appalled at the the idea of losing their access to this food um, petitioned to be allowed to open uh, a new market off the side of the off the side of the street. Um, and and it, it it opened in 1756 in the in the position that it's in now, yeah. um, owned by by and for the parish, um, and it, and it remains operating. You know, it still operates yeah. in trust for the pe- for the people of Southwark. Yeah. Um, so so that that's a that's a like a massive change to the way the market operated that happened in the middle of this period yeah. that we're talking about. So interesting. And the Thames itself, Mark, was that used as a thorough way to get produce in? So therefore I suppose what I'm asking is it being frozen up, did that stop produce being able to get into London? I I, I don't not not massively. So so yes, to a certain extent, um, in the food that was imported from abroad certainly came up came up the river so so i'm sure you know it would have had a it would have had an impact on things like wine coming into the country but but um but to a far greater extent than we do now um we were at that stage kind of feeding ourselves um so 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 most of the fruit and veg yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah um a a lot a lot of the, the food the river traffic 
that came down the food was was a little bit later in the 19th century right. when when the British Empire really yep. started to become a uh, a tool for feeding yep. to, for feeding the nation. So the Thames is frozen. People don't have to worry too much about that, meaning they can't get their milk or wine or whatever it is too no. much. So they can just absolutely go nuts. Yeah, they can. Like they can. But I guess what's really interesting is that is that. So if you, if you think about what what it would have been like living in a country where the average temperature is minus one when you don't have central heating, like th- th- these these were not pleasant times to live through, mm. and and. And, and when you read accounts of these 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 the worst of the winters, they're pretty horrific. Um, the, 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 the the people are people are dying, and and animals are dying out in the out mm. in the fields, and trees are splitting open. And in, in sixteen eighty four, the seas around the country froze. You know, we're talking about serious serious cold. Yeah. And whilst all of this this uh, Unpleasantness is happening whilst people are living through these uh, this, this really really hard time. It seems that a natural response to that, when given the opportunity, is to try and lighten things up by having a little bit of a party. Okay. So, um, so, so yeah, people people flooded down to the river and and, and really did let loose. And were these organised? N- not at all. And, okay. I think, and I think that's one of the one of the wonderful things about it. They're, they're these. They're these explosions, these like outpourings of spontaneous enjoyment, and there's something I think there's something innately British about about the way that they end up unfolding in the in this, there's there's this the, the, there's all of the things that that British people, when given the opportunity to do for fun, do for fun. There's all the sport, there's all the games, there's all the there's all the drinking, the, there's eating meat and eating cake. But there's also there's also um, loads and loads of people who who take the opportunity to try and to try and make a bit of money off it. Um, so so all of the all of the local publicans they all steam down onto the ice, set up tents, yep. try and sell drinks. Market traders pouring out there yep. with their with their wares. There's like shoemakers out on the ice and things like that. Just like completely random collection yeah. of people just selling stuff. Yeah. I think I think what's really lovely is there's there's uh, there's uh, there's there's accounts of like complete tat being sold. Like real tourist tat that's being sold with, with like marked up saying bought at the frost fair and people are paying over the odds for for for, for nothing things. changes is no, it absolutely yeah. nothing, nothing changes it's quite comforting yeah. <laughs> but 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 i think what i think what's interesting about it is that like back, back in that time like markets were very 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 heavily regulated they were a major source of income for for local authorities so so there were all kinds of like license fees mm. and ground rents and and um uh, there would have been sheriffs there would have been weighing beams you couldn't sell anything right. without without it being properly yeah. checked but none of that happened out on the ice because right. the authorities never had the time. Because un- unregulated, yeah, completely area. unregulated, and 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 traders would would make a thing of that. There'd be big signs up saying like no 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 license fees, like you know wow. like every, nobody was paying any window taxes. Yeah. And so I guess some of the some of the booze was cheaper out on yeah. the ice than it would have been yeah. elsewhere. So um, so yeah, it was it was completely unregulated. The only regulation seems to have come, and it was quite a. Again, quite spontaneous regulation came from the um, some of the boatmen. There was, there was a lot of um, the, the Thames. A lot of a lot of a lot of people worked to um, uh, kind of like river taxis, essentially. A lot of a lot of because there were so few crossings on the river. There was a, there were a lot of people that made their living uh, taking people across the river on, on boats, and obviously they they lost their income for, for uh, when the when the river was frozen, and they kind of bandied together and. Um, and kind of created like a little f- official entrances onto the ice 
and then charged people to to to, to, to be allowed yeah. in. Um, and the, these men are quite burly, I'd imagine, like yeah. people who like row boats for a living. So I don't think anybody was really saying no to them. And in some years, they would like smash up the ice around the edge of the of the river in places where they they didn't have their little entrances. Oh. So so I think they were the only they were the only kind of authorities, and yeah. that was a that was a fairly de facto so, authority. So interesting. I feel so much we can kind of keep on talking about, but I do want to think about what people were doing to enjoy themselves and yeah. the food and the drink. Yeah. Uh, and those bits of it. Give us, well, we have Cinnamon Tree Bakery and we have the Ginger Pig. Yes. And presumably we have chosen these people because they're in some way related to the food that people would have been enjoying at the Frost Fair. Absolutely, yeah. So so I think um, I think if you, if, you, if you read the, if you read accounts of, of the food and drink, a lot of it is the stuff that you'd ex- you'd expect f- to find at a fair. There's 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 sweet treats. There's, yeah. um, but but the other thing that, that that so a lot of gingerbread, a lot of cakes, um, a lot of puddings. But the other thing that was a lot of was roasted meat. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think partly because people still love a barbecue, and 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 partly because um, because of the spectacle, the sheer yeah. spectacle of having like uh, fires on the ice. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 animals on spits. I mean, there's um, nothing dangerous about any of that. Is there? So, uh, let, let, we'll yeah. come on to the meat. Let's start with the sweet. Let's start the sweet end of life uh, with the the gingerbread. Um, Andy, is this something which you kind of you know, aware of in terms of what you do at Cinnamon Tree Bakery and your lovely gingerbread and biscuits? Yeah, yeah, it has been. Um, I mean, we've we've started to try and reflect a bit of the frost fair culture in a little bit of the cooking that we're doing for this Christmas so we're actually making a bit of 16th century tourist tap for <laughs> for uh, for customers at Borough to, to come oh. and pick up which is a commemorative Frost Fair biscuit. How brilliant what is it, what, what makes it Frost Fair biscuit? Uh, it's got um, the, the Frost Fair elephant logo on it which you know I'm not 100% sure about the presence of elephants at the Frost Fair, I don't know if you can fill in on that. I, I, it, it's this prevailing myth that there was an elephant at the 1814 fair, but I but have it found... So, good. so, so the Better Bank side have done this like, amazing film trailer, I don't know if you guys have seen this for the Frost Fair stuff, and it's this beautiful animation and it, like, recreating what's happening on the ice, and then they've recreated this um, film of an elephant walking down the ice, yeah. and it does look completely you know, it, incredible. But, it does, it but does look, but, but I can't find any reference okay. to it contemporaneously. No. It sounds um, legit. <laughs> to yeah. me, I'm gonna go with it. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> you don't care that it didn't no, happen. No, no, because so much madness happened. Who yeah, knows? brilliant. You know, a, a, good, a good story is a good story, isn't it? Yeah, especially at Christmas time. Um, you know, yeah. the, the best part of it that, that I heard was they abandoned the uh, frost fair when an elephant fell through the ice, and everyone was like, "Part is over. There's an elephant falling through it's the ice." It's a bold choice, isn't <laughs> yeah. putting an elephant on the ice. Yeah, well, it's a it's a good test for. When the ice is getting a bit yeah. thin, I suppose. Mark, do we know where this uh, mythology, although it's on a you know, disillusion, Andy, so this story about the elephant, when did that come from? Do, do you know what? I, I, if anyone's listening to this who who has any idea whether there is a contemporary reference to this happening, um, I'd be I'd be but really. But when interested did it start it. becoming a truth? Uh, uh, fairly recently, I think. Oh, really? Fairly recently, like I can't. Andy, did you start I've, it? No, I didn't start. Okay. I didn't start it, but I was I was excited to hear it, and and actually, like it ties in quite well with some baking that we used to do. Uh, we used to do a cinnamon elephant, yeah. which was a 
an Indian elephant embossed into a biscuit and it was a very nice spicy cinnamon biscuit. Yeah. So Did when we heard back. about the Frost Fair stuff, we thought, oh, we'll bring this back. And we did a bit of research about the kind of spicing that was being used in gingerbreads at the time. Oh, lovely. Tell me about that. Uh, there was Nutmeg was ubiquitous, really, in a lot of the cooking at the time, both savoury and sweet. Nut, nutmeg had a lot of medical properties accredited to it, and uh, it was very popular and obviously a lovely spice. So mace as well goes along with the nutmeg. It comes off the same plant. Um, yeah, ginger, cinnamon, cardamom. All the good wintry ones. All the good wintry ones, and it's beginning to come in through um, trade channels from the, the Dutch and later British in East India companies. So, uh, I mean, I, I was actually reading a bit about the, the spice islands in Indonesia, where they came from. The, the British eventually gave it back to the Dutch because they swapped it for... Manhattan, which was a trading post for furs at the time, so I guess with the the mini ice age, they probably thought, let's get the fur. It's so interesting, isn't it, this idea about how, well, it's still interesting about how we get our food, but thinking about trade routes and where everything was kind of coming from and how things arrived on our shores. I mean, Edible Histories has a lot of this, doesn't it, Mark, about unpicking these stories. Cinnamon is in there, isn't it? Cinnamon's in there, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and nutmeg almost was, because nutmeg is... Nutmeg is fascinating because it right. comes from just one one tiny little archipelago right. in the in the South Pacific, um, and that's the only place in in the world where it came from at the time, um, which is just incredible to think. Yeah, it? It's, it is totally incredible, and I mean, it did it did cause a lot of stress for the people that lived there, <laughs> but I mean, it's been coming into Europe for maybe two thousand years. Yeah. There's references to it in in Roman writing, yeah. and then coming through. Persia and the Ottoman Empire, and it's always been like highly prized and highly valued. Doesn't it? I mean, it's a lot, lot only, dearer then than it is now. Yeah, mm. you've only got to smell it to know why, though, haven't you? It's so yeah. so beautiful. So the gingerbread that Frost fares, that's going to make me sound a bit silly. This question, I hope it doesn't. Are we? Do we think we're talking about gingerbread like a gingerbread biscuit, or do we think we're talking about gingerbread more like a parkin sort of cake? It would have been more like thing. a parkin, but there there wouldn't have been any kind of active raising agent oh. in it at the time so it would have been pretty dense uh, it would have been sweetened though at least with honey and later with with other sugars as well and and that yeah highly highly spiced and that I expect I expect pretty delicious yeah 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 there'd been dried dried fruits in there as well candied fruits you know so there's no reason why with the technology at the time you couldn't have made a pretty delicious kind of chewy gingerbread. God, that sounds good. Stuff. Bar, you know, like a bar, you know, like a chewy bar. Yeah. Um, I've had a go at a few kind of historic recipes. Oh, really? And uh, they've come out pretty well. And the interesting thing is they keep really well because they're mm. not like a cake where you're going to lose the moisture and it's just going to dry out. Like you bake them and you think, oh, yeah, that's okay. And then you go back to it and you try it a couple of weeks later and you think, oh, it's really yeah, nice now. Yeah, you know, and now well, it's parking really... itself is like that. Yeah, and it? that's, you know, and the Christmas puddings are like that. Yeah. And, you know, that. And because, like you say, there's no refrigeration, it makes sense to make things that are like that. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a long period while these frost fairs were happening. And there was a real big revolution in science taking place at the time. And knowledge and every sort of technology was. was growing and I'm sure like the bakers 
we're, we're developing some some tasty goods yeah at the time, really. and different so, techniques yeah so different mechanization techniques. starting to kind of come in the yeah burgers. just the you know just beginning to get some tools to make these these things a bit easier to make yeah. as well but i think like the the small kind of artisan class that were bringing their wares down to the frost fair you know i think we would still recognize that type of person as being the same type of person that is trading at borough today do you think so, you'd have done it Andy? do you think you've been out there on the ice with your elephant biscuits yeah i'd give it a go i think <laughs> i'd give it a go you know i mean it's just it sounds almost to me when you were describing it there as like a party scene that i would recognize as yeah. like i was thinking about like the rave culture and yeah completely you know yeah, yeah. i really kind yeah. of really resonated with me it's like oh yeah free parties yeah, yeah 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 but if your customers if you've got a shop in in the city the bakers in the city in those days and all your customers were going down to the ice you'd have to go down get the after ice. them you'd have to yeah. get after you yeah. <laughs> to sit in your shop and you think, can't just sit there while they've all gone somewhere <laughs> yeah, else and, and we're all retailers we're all traders aren't we you have got a shop in you know on the bond street or wherever you shop you, you're a trader and you go where the customers are yeah that's a really, really good point. I'm going to come on, I'm dying to come on to talk about me, but I just want to ask you a couple more things, Andy, because I'm interested about the elephant biscuits. And I was listening to you doing an interview and you were talking about icing. Sure. And you're, you're well, talk about icing. I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of icing things and it, it all comes together to mean that I, I don't really do any icing. I love this. I'm not a massive fan of the taste of it, and when I've tried to do it, I've discovered I'm not very good at it. So when you add that all up, yeah. So when you do, there's your no reason for me to, no. to do do icing. So when you're doing your elephant biscuits and other things, and people can look at them and they see some decoration on there, what is that? Ah, uh, no, that's that's um, a technique that we developed in the bakery of embossing the raw dough before it's cooked, and then backfilling that embossed design with either a meringue type mix so it's very loose and you can kind of um almost like plastering right you know yeah you have your sheet of dough you've embossed your design multiple times it's actually more like screen printing okay you get a little squeegee you pour your meringue mixture or you can use like a jaconde type mixture with um just like almost like a, a sponge mix, but very loose. And there uh, you can colour that with cocoa powder or with spices and get a nice contrast with the yeah. base dough. And then you get a squeegee similar to if you were screen printing and you just pull it across and fill in that design and then you bake it. And they come out of the oven, the design's are already on there. And it just always seemed to be more natural way of putting an image on to a cake without either sticking on a transfer yeah. or icing the design on, which I'm not very good at and I don't like the taste, yeah. so why why yeah. go there? So we developed this this technique and actually like decorated gingerbread using wooden moulds and things of that nature. You know, that's been around mm. for hundreds of years, ornate mm. kind of gingerbreads. So it's coming in that tradition, but we... We actually now use um, 3D printed designs. So we do we do the design, we get it, we get it made, 3D printed with a little 
handle on the back, do our embossing. And that's how we do our yeah. custom designs. That's how we did the, the elephants. That's how we do the the Frostfair elephant. Yeah. Nice. I think it's yeah. really important and for people to know that because it's so easy to look at you know, biscuits or whatever and think, oh, it's just, you know, it's just that. But I think how much thought has gone into, you know, thought that begins with either you don't like icing or you think you're not very good at icing. And then the journey, the, the creative journey that then takes you on to then how do you still come up with something which is a beautifully decorated end result. I just think it's absolutely fascinating. There's a nice parallel with the, with the frost fairs as well, actually, the, with the printing side of things. They weren't 3D printing there. But, um, but one, of the, one of the reasons that we know so much about the frost fairs is that the uh, uh, printers and typesetters from the city all piled down to the river as well with their machines and were churning out printed posters and broadsides and memorabilia and poems and all sorts. So there was, in 1814, there was a whole book produced out in the eye called called Frostiana, uh, which is all about ice. Um, So there was was a lot of of printing happening there, quite 2D printing there. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. So, Tim... If Ginger Pig had been around during the Frost Fairs, what do you imagine the Ginger Pig would have been, would have been selling? Well, like Andy, it would definitely be on the, it would definitely be on the, uh, on the mar- on, on the ice if yeah. that's where the customers were. We would be selling. Um, I would think we'd be selling beef because beef was. I don't know the sort of people who would go down. I'd, that's a good question. It wouldn't be the sort of the real mega rich would go down. More of them would be the. I think the working class. And the I, well, there. I think what's really interesting is that is that so so in 1684, for example, which was one of the really really big frost fairs, the royal family turned up there for the oh. day. You know, it, I think I think there was a, there was a real sort of um, openness to it. So yeah, there, there would have been there would have been poor people because out beef, on the ice. I mean, beef was the but, but there the were cheapest. Rich, there were wealthy people out on the ice as well for sure. Because I was thinking maybe you'd you'd it'd be a lot of beef because that was. Mutton, because the yeah. mutton is was popular, but whether there'd be poultry, poultry might be too expensive to have down on the ice. But I, I, there's a the poor people. Uh, there's a, a nice line from a poem here about uh, about 1684 saying that they had hot codlins, pancakes, duck, goose, and sack, being a sweet wine, um, rabbit, capon, hen, turkey, and a wooden jack. Now the wooden jack seems like uh, quite a, 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 a bad attempt to make a rhyme, rather than fitting with <laughs> yeah. the other things in that in that line. I'm just but, to work but yeah, so rabbits, <laughs> capon, hens, turkey, so quite a lot of, yeah, poultry. A lot of, poultry, a lot of poultry. And these were things that people were eating at the frost fair. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So I, there were just lots of little fires set up, okay. and, and and meat was being roasted. Um, and then, how would people then? So you got your roasted. What did you say? Rabbit, capon. Yeah. Yeah, any of those. So you're there at the ginger pig team, you're set up, you've got your little fire, you've got your capon going around and it's what's it. How do people, well, how are people then eating it? How are they enjoying it? I haven't got a clue. Okay, fair enough. I must be sort of some sort of wooden platter or something. Certainly in the 17th century, people did used to have their, well, they used to take their own knives and forks around with them. So if they were visiting, they would often, they would often go to each other's houses. They were going away for to uh, to visit a. They didn't go overnight. They went for for the season. They would take their own plate. No. Yeah, they would take their own wooden platter and they'd take their own three pong fork and a knife. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, they would, they would arrive. So possibly they used to arrive down. Send in a clear message out to whoever's hosting <laughs> you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Christmas, if someone turns up with their own stuff, you would be very... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, man's better than yours, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But that's... So, so could, they could be... I mean, there, there would be no... I don't think they would be butchering it in the way we do now. Uh-huh. It would be lumps. 
Right. Okay. Know, very much. It would be. It would be if they were doing a mutton. If they were doing a lamb was never not really eaten in those days because lamb was there to be shorn, it's meant to be cut for for uh, wool. So it was when the teeth of the lamb started to deteriorate and they couldn't lambs couldn't feed themselves. After maybe four years, they lost their wool producing capabilities mm. and then were eaten. Right. So, but mutton was very highly rated. It was a lot more highly rated than than beef. I've got right. a nice a nice line here actually about mutton, which this is from eighteen fourteen. So, um, they uh, there was a ceremony of roasting a small sheep, which was toasted or rather burnt over a coal fire placed in a large iron pan. For a view of this extraordinary spectacle, sixpence was demanded and willingly paid. The delicate meat, when done, was sold at a shilling a slice and termed Lapland mutton. So these are very entrepreneurial yeah, uh, cooks because they're actually charging people to watch <laughs> them cook. See, there you I'm go, going, Galma. Yeah, I'm going to start thinking about this. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Pies. So it's, it's all going to be lumps, isn't it? So it's a cooking things, but, but to cook a mutton... A, a body of mutton maybe weighs a big one may be weigh 40 45 pounds you go on to a you go on to um a body of beef yeah you're near a 400 pounds okay take a lot more cooking so yeah i was going to ask you about this because because one of the things that keeps coming up is this this thing that they're they're cooking whole oxen like roasting whole oxen they bring they bring the they bring the beast down from smithfield yeah. live knock it down on the ice and roast it whole on the ice. That's, that's what it says, roasted whole. Now, to me, that seems absolutely inconceivable that you could roast a whole, uh, I a would, whole ox. I do, would... How I would, would you do that? Yeah, you, you're on a couple of days, basically. You know, they, that's the problem. And in those days, the, the back end... Because all the animals, certainly in the 17th century, uh, were, uh, were oxen. They were big, heavy-shouldered animals because they were used for pulling plows and, yeah. and working. Uh, it wasn't until the middle of the 18th century that this chap called Robert Bakewell started thinking, well, let's put the weight from the shoulders because we're not using these things to pull plows. Let's take the weight from the shoulder and redistribute and put the weight at the back end where the better meat is. And he started messing about with longhorn breeds and changing how it worked. But back in the 17th century, ooh, it would take a long time to... It wouldn't be that good if you think about it. And also, <laughs> be a bit bloody it, chewy. It is obviously cold. Yeah, you know, people have got the fire that they've got their ox or whatever cooking over, but the surrounding like it's freezing, literally freezing, because that's why people are on the Thames. So it must take even, even. Longer. No, that must be a good thing. They think about it because it was in the middle of summer. Your body of beef, your 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 mutton, whatever it was, your chicken wouldn't keep. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, if you've got in the middle of winter, as you say, all the yeah. animals came into walked over land to Smithfield Market. Yeah. Then bought by the butchers, taken back to their shops or onto the ice. Yeah. Dispatched and and I would say they're cut into lumps, but but you know, whether it's a whole a whole oxen. Yeah. People have said to me, and joking apart, um chefs have said to me, we would like to roast a whole oxen. And I said, Really? I said, Yeah, we'd just like to do it once, you know. Yeah. I said, I don't think it's possible. I just don't think despite the laws and everything else of taking the backbone, but all this sort of physical thing, the size of pitch you'd yeah. need to put a 400 kilo yeah. lump of meat. Yeah. The middle would be, would be knackered by the time you got to the big heavy ends. You know, you've got, you've got six inches of meat in the middle and 18 inches of meat on the leg and the same yeah. on the shoulder. 
Yeah. It'd be a very difficult thing to do. The, the yeah. other thing with it is like, and, and it, this is a reflection of how deep, how thick the ice must have been. The idea of having like a fire burning on the same patch of ice for for long enough to cook to cook an ox seems quite sounds quite dangerous, doesn't the it? The whole thing but, sounds completely dangerous. Yeah. You've got elephants wandering down. You haven't got elephants wandering down. <laughs> but, but other than other than that, um, don't yeah. say that to Andy. Which is a bit surprising with the elephants. Tim, what do you think? Uh, if you were doing that, if there was the equivalent of that, of that now, what would be you know, the kind of ginger pig answer to a modern frost fair, bacchanalia, let's just, you know, all lose our minds a little bit and have some fun menu? Well, I mean, I do, I've always liked to do things, big things always impress me. So it would be something like a baron of beef. It would be those things which, which you just don't see anymore. Um, so baron of beef is, is the end of the sirloin with all the fillet right down through the rump to the top of the back leg. And would weigh, uh, would weigh uh, 25, it would weigh about 120, 120 kilos, something wow. like that. And that's, but you've got, all the, you've got all the sirloin with all the fat in it. You've got the fillet on the inside, which is protected by the bone the fat that's around the outside, that's all protected. You've got the rump roast really, really well on the yeah. top of the back leg. All that slow roasted and then just, I don't know, with bread buns, but but you'd have, we could bring their own plate down, bring your own plate yeah, and yeah. we'd take a big thick slice of that. Is that something that happens? Do people do that? Do no. people roast? Okay. I don't know anybody does it. I've seen many people over the years have asked me if it's possible to do. Okay. And for various reasons, it's hard. One of the, because of the BSE rules, animals, um, bovines have to be split down the middle. Um, so that immediately stops the baron. You know, you've yeah. got a sirloin in a rump. You could still do it, but no, because people want ovens. And I saw a lot of sheep. We saw a lot of sheep, uh, a lot of lambs to be to be roasted out in the garden yeah. and that's again I just think a disaster because you give these things they they light a fire and they put a they put a they, they build a some form of of, of, of um, lean to ramp over the fire and they lay the yeah and I've seen people do it it's very trendy it's very trendy <laughs> but it's not great and uh, people doing whole pigs whole pigs yeah whole pigs yeah and that is that is still the thing I mean that Back in the day, oh, I just think... There were pigs. lots of whole pigs. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's an easy... That's, it's not too big. You know, a whole pig only weighs... Um, in those days, they'd be a lot bigger. Um, but, but, you know, a whole pig would weigh um, 150, 160 pounds. Yeah, okay. um, yeah about uh, 80 kilos. Yeah. That is six hours and you've, you've roasted it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I would definitely be there. Yeah. I would definitely, definitely, definitely be there. Definitely Unquestionably, be there. Unquestionably, yes. <laughs> um, it feels more from what some things you've sort of picked out whilst we've been talking that there's a real kind of theatre, maybe more so to do with the meat aspect, but maybe that's just because we've just been talking about, but a kind of spectacle to it. And Tim, I'm curious as to, um, if we accept that as being true, to what degree do you feel that people still... Uh, want that from a butcher's like you, that the spectacle, the theatre of it? Um, when I first opened in Moxon Street, I came to Borough Market, I opened in Borough Market, and I just had a cold room in a butcher's block. And then I opened in Moxon Street in Marylebone. And London, established London butchers said to me 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it ain't going to work this. You know, be, be, London people will not accept a cold room and a butcher's block and you taking a lamb out and putting it that's what I do. I don't, you know. And when I opened the shop, the counter was five foot long. And that's all we had. And 
I thought, well, I'm either going to sink or swim. But, yeah, people came into the shop for the theatre. Many people would, would get to the front of the queue. And I was, as I was the only butcher, and I'm a very slow butcher, people get to the front of the queue and, and I would serve them and they get the bag and then they, they wouldn't go out the shop, they'd stand to one side mm. just to watch what was going on. And, and I think it's not just butchery, I think you can watch a bricklayer, you watch anybody doing a job. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. And we all like watching somebody do something. You know, it's just one of those things that fascinates us. You know, I'll still go past a field and if there's a guy with a combine harvester combining, I'll stop and watch him. Yeah. Well, it's like Andy talking about the biscuits and about how you do the embossing. You think, God, I mean, that is the same thing, isn't it? That idea of just the process of it and how fascinating that is to people. Yeah. Because we don't see people doing it anymore. You yeah. walk into, you know, you walk into the average super, any supermarket, but but most shops, everything is pre-packaged. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's biscuits or if it's bread, or what it is. Everything today is is done elsewhere, and it's brought into a shelf in front of you. To actually watch somebody preparing something is yeah. quite unusual now. You know, I'd watch a baker all day long. You know, yeah, I think yeah. it's absolutely. Yeah, I, I think somewhere there's a. Probably, I'm going back 20 years, but but they used to have a donut making machine, where fat was dropped in onto a conveyor belt and it went along and it dropped into. It was all comedy, but people sort of watched it. They just watched this dough going along the conveyor belt and dropping into the frying pan. They didn't buy them. But they're just watching it. Yeah, I think before the whole kind of contemporary street food scene, hot donuts were one of the only kind of commonly available foods that you saw cooked when you did go to a fair of some kind. And they would have a donut machine with a sort of donut hopper hanging above the, yeah, yeah, that's, the fat. That, that, yeah, that's it. That, and, yeah. uh, you know, it, it soon draws a good crowd, especially smelling the, the way that it, that it does. Fish and chip shops, watching yeah. a man frying vats yeah. of chips and taking them out. It's just one of those fascinating... Yeah. I think people like to see a little bit behind the curtain of event in any trade. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose that is what Borough Market gives, isn't it? People get the theatre as well as getting the amazing produce. And I think that obviously is you know, behind a long part of its appeal and the longevity. Of Borough Market, appeal. when it first started, I, I, the, the, the market would be full of people wandering about watching. Yeah. And, and they would spend, you know, back in the day, they would spend four or five hours just wandering around. There wasn't the cooked food then, there is there. Mm. It was just vegetables or fish or whatever but people wandering around and looking and thinking and um, and bringing their recipe books in you know they all had their yeah. recipe with Jamie Oliver recipe book I want to make that they showed you the photograph not the ingredients want to make that you know. <laughs> how do I do that yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so brilliant um one more question for you, Tim, and then I'm going to come generally to asking, so there's a little bit of warning about my next broad question, which is about uh, the Bankside area now and what it means to London, to the London food scene, and for, for you two guys, you know, why why you are a borough, why it matters to be a borough. So you can have a little ponder on that, but I'll ask you, Tim, quickly, I cannot sit opposite you, and, have, and I may never get the chance to interview you again, so this is my moment to ask you about the sausage rolls. The, gen- the genesis of the epic, life-changing ginger pig sausage roll. How did um, they come into the ha- into the world? Because I've always liked big things. When I first started the ginger pig off, when I first started farming, I I, I wanted Tamworth pigs. And he said to me, why, why do you want Tamworth? You, they're so difficult to... They're called a prick-eared pig. They're, their ears stick up so they can see. 
a, a lop-eared pig. There he is. And I can't see where they're going, so they're quite easy. I said, I want, I want, I want Tamworth. I'm going to have Tamworth pigs. So I said, the biggest you can get. I'm going to have longhorn cattle, because it's the biggest you can get. So, so I tend to like big things. So when the sausage roll thing came along, um, my sausages were big. You know, it was, I, it, it's a bit of bit the market trade, I suppose, but people don't buy sausages by kilos, mm-hmm. buy sausages by numbers. It's true. So if you sell a little sausage in six of them, it's £4.50. Yeah. If you make them a bit bigger, it's £6. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I made everything. I cut right. my bacon a bit thicker than... Yeah. So everything was a bit on the big side. And I had a great chef worked for me... Um, when I first started in Borough, called Paul Hughes, and Paul was like me. He was he was it was larger than life. He was my size, and, and in Borough in those days, we used to make we used to make pork pies and sausage rolls, and the snow used to come through the roof, and it would cover the pork pies and the sausage rolls as Paul was making them. Yeah. And and he started we just started making pastry, and I rolled out the sausage meat, and I rolled it big, and Paul said, "It's going to be that thick. It's got to be that long." So the big sausage roll just yeah. And it just, just came. And, and, and over the years, so many people, business changes and you get finance directors and accountants involved and everybody says the one thing, make the sausage roll smaller. No. Said, no. <laughs> They're not going to last with ginger pig, are they, with that kind that's, of... That's, 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 yeah, the sausage rolls. And now we actually make bigger ones. I think we're doing a Christmas one for, I don't know, this week and last week maybe. Yeah. And they are a foot long. Wow. These massive big sausage rolls, but, but yeah, it's just it's just you can have another big one. If anyone's listening who hasn't had a ginger pig sausage roll, your life is lacking. You've got, <laughs> you've got to get down there and try one. They are they are phenomenal. Um, Andy, Cinnamon Tree Bakery, Bar Market, as you say, since two thousand and eight. So you say, yeah. Just tell me a little bit about why why you're at Bar Market and the Bankside area more broadly, and what what it sort of means to you as part of the food community. Okay. Um, this is a really interesting question. It's difficult to to like put one single answer on it. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's important to me to maintain some kind of creative practice in what I do. Um, and so the bakery, when we started, just became a focus for that really. And to always try and keep things, keep things fresh and relatable, and like every kind of cake that you sell or sausage roll, it's, it's food, but it's part of the entertainment industry as well, I think. And and I guess that's where it it fits into that that culture for me. Um, we've got our own little community, you know, of people both at the market and back in Peckham, where we do the baking. Just trying to have a good time, you know, and even when times are hard, you, if you get the opportunity to have a good time, and that's what you do. Um, the bakery itself, really, is is beginning to evolve now into something else. You know, we've started with the, the crackers that we've started yeah. making as well, which is branching out and trying something new. Which I love. I you don't know, absolutely about that. No, There's rye much. digestives. The, um, the Borough Market, the knowledge book, which came out October 22, there's a cheesecake recipe in there which uses your rye digestives as the base. And I think they just, they are the most gorgeous foundation for cheesecake. But all the, all the crackers are bad. Love yeah, the crackers. Yeah, well, thanks. 
Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. Going uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think it is quite. I think it is quite difficult to necessarily pin down in your life why you're doing a particular thing and not doing something else. But while you know, while you are doing what you're doing, you try and channel as much creativity and joy into it yeah. as you've got, really. Yeah. Was Borough Market where you started the Sedentary Bakery? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, why? Why there? Uh, well, Anita, my partner Anita, was already working at the market. She uh-huh. she had initially started at Turnips and had been at, working at Turnips for a long time. And then she began her first stall, which was Middle Eastern pastries, Amisha sweets, that went back even a few years previous yeah. to Cinnamon Tree. And then when the opportunity to start Cinnamon Tree came up, it just seemed like such a good idea to be small producers doing something which, you know, I could relate back to from things that my family did for a living back in the day when I was a kid, so it felt quite natural to just go with it. And that ten years between the Ginger Pig starting at Borough and Cinnamon Tree starting at Borough, you saw, I'm guessing, Tim, a lot change at Borough Market in the area over that time. Yeah, tremendous amount. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I won't say it's it's a very different market, uh, and now is not better, um, and then wasn't better. It's just it's just evolved. But those first, I mean, the very very first time I came to the market, my ex-wife used to come down to the market with a little. Ford Escort van. I did the butchery back in a little farm shop. I think bloody shit. It was it was the third Saturday of every month. I used to dread this Saturday because it used to want things, and she put me to polystyrene boxes, sausages and bacon, and and she'd set sail with a friend of hers at like three o'clock in the morning to come to Borough Market, uh, and there were no there were no chill counters or anything like that. It was just you open the back of your van and polystyrene boxes were there, but Anne got a following of of local customers. Um, and the market did. I mean, the market had a tremendous. They would they would go and go to turnips and buy the vegetables. They'd go to less the fishmonger for the fish, and it, it and it's changed. Um, I one particularly one we'd done it for a year, and I was so behind getting anything ready to go to the market on the Friday. I just put a butcher's block in the back of the van and I put two pigs and some big lumps of beef and some sausages in trays. And I drove down to the market and I opened the back of the van on Saturday morning and I pulled the butcher's block out and I put the butcher's block on the stand and I got a couple of pigs and I started cutting them up and people started to queue. Wow. And I didn't go home for two years. Yeah, that's I went amazing. to a bed and breakfast across the road. But that takes us back to the idea, doesn't it, of theatre? Yeah, it was. It was, and I thought this is this is the way to sell meat. This is this is absolutely the way to sell meat. Um, I said, I I rang up. I said, I'm not going to come back. You know, I'm just going to stay here. This is this is the way, because if you're in in Yorkshire, people there were butcher shops all around. Mm. You could go and see the theatre I was doing in London, in Tickhill, in Doncaster, in any of the towns. Yeah, but you couldn't in London. I think that was, and, and for that reason, you know, it's uh, it's it's it stuck with me, and I will be there forever. You know, we've 
the market's grown and changed. The, the channels, the escort van has gone. We've now got a proper cold room. Thank God, I could. T- the stories of moving. My very first, I think, rail track were doing some work and I had to bring a forklift truck down from Yorkshire to lift my cold room up in the middle. I thought, why am I doing this? And actually, one of the girls who worked for me, I said, why am I doing this? This is madness. Absolute madness. Moving a, moving a cold room across the market, across rail track were coming in. Yeah. And she said, keep doing it. Don't stop doing it. And I thought, I nearly packed it in there. I thought, this is odd. But anyway, you know, it, 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 it's, it's changed. And... The market is more is more permanent in, in that we don't have to move everything away during the day for lorries coming in from Sicily and bringing fruit from the south of France. All, all that's altered. Um, but the customers are still foodies and still interested. They still want to watch what you're doing. You say, that's, that's, that's why we do it. Yeah. Mark just finishes up by talking about the Bankside area and the market and its its relevance, I suppose, in the sense of the food community. So, so I think one of the things I love about Borough Market as it is now is that it's not this entity that just exists in isolation from everything that came before. It's part of this continuum of this small part of London being absolutely central to the food culture of, of the city, even even at a time when it was outside the city. So it, it, it's had this market for a thousand years, near enough. Um, it's been a, it, that that area has been a, a, a centre of brewing. It was the it was the great brewing centre of, of of London. It's been a, a centre of vinegar production. There were huge uh, vinegar factories around there. There've been there've been bakeries, um, food food production, and Southwark have, have have been hand in hand. I tell you what, just thinking, just thinking out loud. That's why the tanneries are there, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Because you've got Smithfield. Yeah. It never yeah. occurred. I thought, well, it's obviously why the tanneries because it's so yes, where the, that's where the animals were killed. Yeah. yeah so so that there's um, borough market changes and evolves. I'm sure there'll be a market there hundreds of years in the future because of the because of the way because of the way that it it's owned for for, for the people of the area but I think we, we we've seen this like accelerated evolution in 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 the nature of the area over the past 20 years or so and that'll keep on happening mm. but I think that food will will stay part of that I think food is absolutely kind of baked into the into the culture of bankside um, yeah. and and it would be it would be absolutely wonderful if at some point in the future, I think it's very unlikely, given climate change. It would be it would be amazing if we could have a cold enough winter for the Thames just to <laughs> just to freeze, just for a few days, yeah. so we can see that that little dash of food producers yeah. and the elephants come out, out onto the ice. We'd so actually you can, walk, you can walk on first. I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. get some get some uh, yeah. Get some frost fair action. But in the again. meantime, people can get their little bursts of frost fair by hanging out at Bankside through until the end of January. I'll say there are art installations and murals and films and food and drink and all kind of things happening, sort of showcasing what the frost fairs were. Um, chaps, thank you ever so much for joining me to talk about all that today. Um, really, really interesting to delve into the frost fairs, but also kind of you know, more recent things that you're all up to as well. Um, Mark Ridway, thank you very much. Tim Wilson, Ginger Pig, thank you very much. And Geddes Cinnamon Tree Bakery, thank you. Um, and I hope you have all really enjoyed this edition of Borough Talks. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. A reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week 
For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.